Good morning, everyone. Good morning. morning. So we've been looking at the book of Isaiah for the last two weeks. Today we're going to talk about Isaiah books three and four, specifically looking at when the leaders are lost. So over the past two weeks, we've talked about Isaiah one and two. First, in Isaiah one, Jay walks us through how God declares his judgment over the people of Israel. But he does this not just to judge them, but to purify them through a judgment through fire. Then Vanessa walks us through Isaiah 2, where Isaiah tells us that the nations will flock to the mountain of God. And we looked at how Jesus fulfills this prophecy by being the one that we can all look to for hope. So today we're going to look at chapters 3 and 4, and we'll continue in these themes of God's judgment purifying us. And also we'll look at how his hope in his presence can bring us to a place of trusting in him more. We'll specifically look at what this means to us as a priesthood of believers. So in chapter 3, Isaiah prophecies about the Babylonian exile. So for historical context, Isaiah was a prophet who lived in the southern kingdom of Judah during the 8th century BC. And a little over 100 years later, the Judeans would then be taken into captivity under the Babylonians. In this situation, in this historical event that happened, the Babylonian Empire came in and over the course of several years took away Judah's best and brightest until there was just a remnant of the poorest of the poor that was left in Jerusalem. So it's with this understanding that we'll dive into the text. Isaiah 3, 1 through 15. See now the Lord, the Lord Almighty, is about to take from Jerusalem and Judah both supply and support, all supplies of food and all supplies of water, the hero and the warrior, the judge and the prophet, the diviner and the elder, the captain of 50 and the man of rank, the counselor, skilled craftsman, and clever enchanterer. I will make mere youths their official. Children will rule over them. People will oppress each other, man against man, neighbor against neighbor. The young will rise up against the old, the nobody against the honored. A man will seize one of his brothers in his father's house and say, you have a cloak, you be our leader. Take charge of this heap of ruins. But in that day he will cry out, I have no remedy, I have no food or clothing in my house. Do not make me the, people, the leader of the people. Jerusalem staggers, Judah is falling. Their words and deeds are against the Lord, defying his glorious presence. The look on their faces testifies against them. They parade their sin like Sodom, they do not hide it. Woe to them, they have brought disaster upon themselves. Tell the righteous it will be well with them, for they will enjoy the fruit of their deeds. Woe to the wicked, disaster is upon them. They will be paid back for what their hands have done. Youth suppress my people, women roll over them. My people, your guides lead you astray, they turn you from the path. The Lord takes his place and judge the people. The Lord enters into judgment against the elders and leaders of his people. It is you who have ruined plunder from in your houses. What do you mean by crushing my people and grinding the faces of the poor, declares the Lord, the Lord Almighty. So in these passages, we see Judah's desperation for leadership in the absence of a king. After the Babylonians conquered Judah, kings tried to rise up, but they were assassinated either by the Babylonians themselves or for rivals to the throne. Isaiah prophecies that eventually there won't even be men willing to lead and that leadership will fall to children and women. This isn't a judgment on the competence of women leaders or really even child leaders. This imagery is meant to show how desperate Judah will become as they lack men who are willing to lead. 
So this desperate need for conventional human leadership has always been a struggle for the Israelites. During the time of the prophet Samuel, who was the last judge over Israel before they began to have kings over them, the people of Israel asked Samuel to appoint a military leader over them. This makes Samuel upset, so he goes to God and asks for guidance. And when he goes to God for guidance, this is what God tells him. Listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. So you can hear God's heartbreak in this passage. God then goes on to describe to Samuel about all the things that their kings will do to them. They will take away their sons and daughters. They will take away their possessions. God tells Samuel to warn the people that eventually they will cry out for relief from their own leaders. Nevertheless, the people of Israel ignore God's warning and they continue to ask for a king. So eventually Samuel appoints a king for them. And this sets into motion this long history of the Israelites having military leaders who exploit them and who sin against them. In Isaiah 3, we see God call out these sins in Judah's leaders. First, idolatry. This is the overarching issue that's being pointed out in Isaiah 3. At the beginning of chapter 3, God tells us about how God is going to take away these things that the Israelites find their security in. He says he's going to take away their heroes and warriors and their supplies of food and water. These are the things that the kings of Judah have placed their trust in instead of the Lord. Next is exploitation of the poor. In Isaiah 3, 14 through 15, God specifically calls this out when he says to the elders and leaders, it is you who have ruined my vineyard. What do you mean by crushing my people and grinding the faces of the poor? And lastly, pride. In Isaiah 3, 9, God says, the look on their faces testifies against them. They parade their sin like Sodom. They do not hide it. And this is what brings disaster on the people. So really, don't we see these qualities in every earthly leader, this idolatry, this exploitation of the poor sometimes, and this pride? While I was prepping for this talk, I was racking my brain trying to think of some historical figures that were particularly bad examples of leadership. But the fact is, everyone falls prey to these things. We all pray to, fall prey to these things. We all have idols, and as a result of those idols, we can often exploit the poor. The poor. And we also are prone to having pride rather than humility when we're doing well. So over the past year, we've seen numerous injustices in the world. I know that we were all pretty happy about during the Derek Chauvin trial this week, but the fact is we all have a long way to go still in this country the wrongs that we've committed against black and brown people in this country. Uh, over the past year during COVID, we've seen domestic violence increase a hundredfold around the world because of the financial stress on families that's been increasing. We've seen schools shut down and we've seen children left at home alone with no adult supervision during the day. And we see this income and education gap continue to widen right before our eyes. And as Christians, we ask ourselves, what can we do about this? So our family's actually been blessed this past year and we've been trying to be generous with the resources we've been given. But I have to confess that over the past year, this temptation that I've been seeing rise up in my heart is this temptation to pursue more. Because I think, if I could just make more money, if I can just have more power, more influence, then I can make this world the way that I think God that thinks that it should be. And it becomes easy for me to, and I, I mean, I've never considered myself an ambitious person. I've never tried to strive for more, but because of these injustices, I find this 
temptation rising up in my heart. So I started thinking, you know, if I have more money, then people are going to have to listen to me and the things that I value. And I read my Bible, so what I value should be right, right? And that's how I fix the world. And of course, this is sin. My dependence is shifting away from God as being the leader and the one that I follow. And it's shifting to me trying to make money and influence the way that I can see myself fixing this world. And it's so easy to spiritualize the sin of dependence. We've all heard this adage, God helps those who help themselves. And this is complete bunkum. Sorry to use my French, but it's bunkum. Like this is the attitude that leads to idolatry. And idolatry leads to the other sins that Isaiah calls out. Idolatry happens when we look to our own strength or resources or that of others. Exploitation of the poor is what we do when we feel like we deserve more than others because we worked harder for it or we have better values than them. Pride is what we feel when we think that we're responsible for our success, not God. And we can try to spiritualize it and say, oh, you know, God has blessed me. Yeah, I've been blessed. But the reality is, if we're looking to the security of the things that we have here on Earth to try to fix things or to try to make ourselves feel like we're making progress in this world, then that completely misses the point. So in contrast to these sins listed in Isaiah 3, Isaiah 4 gives a message of hope for restoration. Isaiah 4, 2 through 6. In that day, the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land will be the pride and glory of the survivors in Israel. Those who are left in Zion, who remain in Jerusalem, will be called holy, all who are recorded among the living in Jerusalem. The Lord will wash away the filth of the women of Zion. He will cleanse the bloodstains from Jerusalem by a spirit of judgment and a spirit of fire. Then the Lord will create over all of Mount Zion and over those who assemble there a cloud of smoke by day and a glow of flaming fire by night. Over everything, the glory will be a canopy. It will be a shelter and shade from the heat of the day and a refuge and a hiding place from the storm and rain. The imagery in this last part of the passage reminds us, reminds us of God's presence, his physical presence among the people of Israel as, during, uh, as they were fleeing Egypt during the Exodus. Here, God is pointing to his own divine leader that he will appoint, who will cleanse his people with a spirit of judgment and a spirit of fire. Jesus is our shelter and refuge. In contrast to the sins of the leaders in Isaiah 3, Jesus sets an example for us. First, that sin of idolatry. Before beginning his ministry, Jesus is sent out into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights where he's tempted by the devil. So during this time, the devil repeatedly tries to tempt Jesus to take matters into his own hands. He tries to tempt Jesus into making food for himself. He tries to tempt Jesus into throwing himself off of a high place to see if God will rescue him. Jesus rejects all of these temptations and instead continuously points to the Lord and to scripture for the ways in which he is to behave according to the ways that God has set for him. And then he follows that path that he rejects that temptation to take control over the world and he instead follows on this humble path that God has sent him down, even, past, uh, even to death on a cross. Exploitation of the poor. Instead of exploiting the poor, Jesus feeds them and heals their illnesses. He equips people like the blind men and the Samaritan woman to become spiritual leaders for their entire villages. He inspires rich people to give away their wealth to the needy. Pride. Instead of pride, Jesus demonstrates his greatness 
by choosing to serve his disciples by washing their feet. He then tells each of us to do the same for each other. So the Apostle Peter calls us a priesthood of believers. Instead of looking to a single earthly leader, we are all called to be priests for the Most High. And we, in turn, are to look to Jesus Christ as our head priest. Isaiah 4 echoes this idea of a priesthood of believers led by Christ when he says that all who remain in Jerusalem will be called holy. We are that remnant that is called to remain holy. And God will guide us with a cloud of smoke by day and a pillar of fire by night. The Holy Spirit is that cloud of smoke by day and is that pillar of fire by night. So this imagery reminds us of the Israelites who fled Egypt during the Exodus and were led by God in the wilderness. But we should also remember that this same group of Israelites who saw the presence of God in person among their people is also the same group of Israelites that failed to see God and failed to go into the promised land. They followed God when they could see him physically, but when times got tough, they doubted that God would provide for them. They literally created an idol because they didn't trust that God was among them, among other sins. And because of this, God took away their opportunity to enter the promised land, and instead he passed on that mantle of leadership to the next generation so that they could be the ones to carry forth that mission. In the same way, we have the benefit of hindsight of seeing how the ways that the church has failed before us, the ways that the church has idolized and exploited the poor and has been proud. And I could go into all sorts of examples of that, um, but let's just focus on our own hearts today. As a priesthood of believers, we've also been warned not to fall into those same sins. So how do we avoid these sins and specifically the sin of idolatry? Because I do think the other two sins start with idolatry this need to provide for ourselves or to look to something that we can see to feel secure rather than trusting that God has our back. So let's think about something that we place our trust in. Do you see money as being the key to your security? Like I have often been tempted to do sometimes. Maybe it's your family. Do you place time spent with your family above all else, even sometimes at the expense of serving others? Do you make an idol of how others view you, this image that you project forth? Do you find yourself behaving one way in front of people at church, maybe a different way in front of your coworkers or your classmates? And are you so afraid of people getting to know the real you that you feel you have to hide a part of who you are? I want us to encourage, I want to encourage us to think about what we might be idolizing and to be intentional about giving up control over that thing. Because it's only by giving up that thing that we are able to allow God to come in and to be the thing that we rely on rather than that thing that we're trying to hold on to. So if you're setting your sights on getting that next dollar, maybe the next time when the opportunity comes up to take on another side gig, maybe think about going and spending that time with your family instead. Or maybe surprise someone with maybe a gift that you think that they would need or a meal that you cooked or paid for. If you find you've drifted away from friendships because you haven't spent time with anyone outside of your family, maybe think about going out of your way to book a time to have a ladies' night or a guys' night out and reconnect with those friendships because they're still going to be there long after your kids have moved on. And honestly, your kids are not going to miss you for a couple of hours. Or invite people to dinner if that's what works better for you so that you can share your family with others. If you worry about what people might think of you if they get to know you better, Maybe think about one or two people that you can trust 
to go deeper into relationship with so that you can show them who you really are and that you can get to know them better. When we give up the thing that we're afraid to lose, we're able to see God provide for us. When we leave Egypt, when we give up this idea of having an earthly king that we can follow, we reject those idols and we trust Jesus to be our shelter and our refuge. Dude, I, I really want to clap too, but I don't know what to do, because that was awesome. Totally. <laughs> and um, that was, uh, I'm, I'm still kind of reflecting on a lot of her points, uh, especially when, when um, Nan was talking about how this past year she's been struggling with this temptation to just pursue more, whether that's more money, more power. And, and I find myself feeling this way too, um, especially kind of using, uh, just this mindset with this idea of, well, if I can gain more power, I can use this power for good. And just recognizing that, well, it's complicated. There, there might be a place for that. And yet, if this is the path that we commit ourselves in life, we end up going kind of the opposite, right? Um, and while certainly it does help if people in power share their power and use their power for good, there is something about my posture, the posture of my life and how I pursue that. Um, and, uh, and, and it actually has really profound implications on our discipleship and who we are as Christians and our, 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 our process of becoming spiritually mature and more like Christ. I, um, I uh, do a bunch of research on uh, spiritual formation and spiritual maturity. And a couple of years ago, I uh, spent uh, a couple days with some spiritual directors up in Portland, Oregon. They're Benedictine monks. And I asked them the question, how do you tell if someone is actually spiritually mature versus someone who's just really trying really hard to look like they're spiritually mature? And one of the things that they said is actually how they wield power. Uh, to what degree they uh, have learned to navigate their will to power, the will to get more things, to have more influence. And this is how they, uh, <clears throat> this is one of the markers of spiritual maturity. And one of the areas of research that I do is on, and it's a bit of a depressing topic, it's on the topic of narcissistic head pastors in Christian churches. <laughs> you know, not only the impact of them, uh, the negative impact on them, on, 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 you know, on, on, on their congregations, but also the larger systems of church cultures that are kind of waiting. They have a space for a narcissistic personality. And even if you take one out um, due to moral failure, due to lots of other stuff, th there's something ingrained in the culture that just seeks out another King Saul in its place. So as a result, you see churches that just kind of hire narcissistic pastors over and over and over again and subject their congregation and their leadership to various forms of abuse over and over again. And that's something that our church has been thinking about, uh, struggling through. I know even from the very beginning with, uh, uh, I know we've been having so many discussions with Tommy about like, we don't want that here in our church. And this is something that we are um, in a long road and a long journey of struggling through. And one of the ways, if, in case you guys haven't noticed already, one of the ways that we're, um, we're uh, resisting this tendency of human sinful nature is that we want to incorporate multiple voices into our leadership. And we want to start that with mul incorporating multiple voices uh, in terms of teaching on Sunday. So if you haven't noticed already, the last two months, we've had about six different preachers here. 
And Lord willing, we'll have a few more too. We have a rotation of people, and that's one of the val that's this is kind of the underlying reasons. I think Nan did such a great job in giving us the biblical rationale behind one of the most important values of our church, which is sharing power, sharing space, and incorporating multiple voices into our church. So, um, and we do this again because this is the humility, this is the posture that Jesus modeled uh, when he was here. Uh, on earth as well. And again, uh, going into uh, communion, communion every single week that we take communion, we would love for it to be a reminder for all of us. We love for it to be a space where we ground ourselves in the reality of Jesus and his relationship to power as well. Right? He didn't follow this path of um, striving for more, uh, even you know, for whatever reason, for whatever justification. He, he served the world in a much different way. And as we struggle with our sinful nature, we want to uh, reorient ourselves over and over again to the way of Jesus in this regard. So if you haven't already, I want to invite you to uh, take your <clears throat> communion elements. And I see a bunch of people who are um, being very helpful. Thank you so much. And um, if you could uh, start with, if we can start with the bread. Pull out that purple film on the top. <clears throat> and I'll pause for just a few moments. And it's such a joy to see um, our church uh, coming together more and more each week. And I'm looking forward to us filling the space out and us becoming reacquainted with each other uh, in many weeks to come. So this bread is made from many grains, from many fields, yet was formed into a single loaf. In the same way, we are from many cultures and many places, but we are one body. The communion is a reminder that the body of Christ was broken so that we would be made one with him. The body of Christ broken from you for you. Let's respond. The body of Christ broken for me. Also, the juice of this cup contains many vines, made by many hands, yet it pours freely. In the same way, let us pour ourselves freely, just as Christ modeled for us. May we be generous givers of our and blessings to each other and to all. The cup of Christ poured out for you. Let's respond. The cup of Christ poured out. Let us respond together with the following. Though we partake now from a distance, we long for the day to partake together in person. Though we partake now with partial satisfaction, we long for the full feast at the eternal table in the presence of God. Let's pray together as we wrap up our time for this Sunday morning. Let's pray. Father, we take seriously uh, we receive your word with reverence and um, with a sober heart. This warning that you give to your people in the book of Isaiah about the sin of idolatry, the sin of exploiting the poor, and the sin of pride. And Lord, we confess all of these things collectively as a church body. We also confess all of these things individually as we embody them individually. Lord, we 
invite your leadership, we invite your hand in leading us through and guiding us through and redirecting us in uh, leading us towards continual repentance in the many years and the many decades to come. And we ask that you might give us hearts that might be soft enough, uh, that might be humble enough to be open to the feedback that we need to hear continually. In Jesus' name I pray. Well, it's wonderful to be with you all this morning. As you're noticing, there's some changes uh, ha slowly happening, you, so, which you can actually see. Uh, we did a lot of work yesterday from uh, Love Fullerton. Um, behind you over there, there's this really huge stool, steel pole, and that's going to be the foundation of some um, shade sails um, that we're going to install hopefully in the next few weeks. And we were also kind of uh, visioning and dreaming that we might install like a basketball hoop there because this is all set up here. So. Um, so some fun changes are happening, and for those of you who are online, we uh, love you, and we're so grateful to remain connected with you, and as soon as it is safe, we'd love for you to start uh, coming in person so we can fellowship together in person again. So again, it's super fun to see our uh, space uh, filling out uh, slowly, uh, week by week, and um, blessings to you this all coming week. Take care.